Hello, and welcome to the Nutrition Diva Podcast. I'm your host, Monica Reinagel, and this week we are celebrating a pretty big milestone, 15 years of doing this show. A milestone that I certainly didn't anticipate reaching when we launched this show back in 2008. For one thing, I wondered whether I might run out of things to talk about after 50 or 100 episodes, but I needn't have worried. From the very beginning, this show has focused on providing more clarity around some of the murkier areas of nutrition science, debunking common nutrition myths, scrutinizing questionable claims, and attempting to put sensational media coverage of nutrition research into perspective. And so far, I haven't run out of myths, questionable claims, or sensational media coverage. It seems, therefore, fitting to observe this anniversary by responding to a recent op-ed in the New York Times that questioned the very legitimacy of nutrition research. So I have a rule of thumb that if I receive the same question or forwarded news story from more than three listeners in a single day, that topic gets an episode. Well, four of you sent me this particular article within a single hour. The article that got everyone's attention was penned by two researchers from Harvard Medical School, so heavy hitters, and the points that they were making weren't exactly new. Research into how foods and dietary patterns affect human health has always been hamstrung by the challenges inherent in conducting properly controlled experiments on living human subjects. The only way to really control a subject's diet, not to mention the other variables that might have an impact such as sleep, movement, and a thousand other artifacts of our daily life, is to confine them to a laboratory setting for the duration of the experiment. Second best, perhaps, would be to provide every single thing they eat and drink, and then either put them on the honor system or somehow monitor them for compliance. So obviously this is expensive and intrusive, and when this sort of research is actually done, it virtually never lasts longer than a few weeks at most. And that's not nearly enough time for the long-term impacts of our diet and lifestyle choices to play out That takes decades, which is obviously far longer than anybody's going to live in a lab. But more importantly, what happens under those strictly controlled laboratory conditions is obviously going to be of limited relevance to those of us who are living out here in the real world. It's also really tough to do double-blinded research because human subjects can generally tell what they are and are not eating. I mean, we can sometimes be fooled, but most of us can taste the difference, for example, between regular sugar and artificial sweeteners. And our awareness of what we are taking in can affect how we respond. So as a result of these limitations, the lion's share of dietary guidance and advice is based on observational data. We gather information about what people eat and This is usually self-reported data, which raises obvious concerns about the reliability, as well as looking at health data and outcomes over long stretches of time. From this admittedly large but very messy data set, we attempt to identify patterns, which eating or exercise patterns seem to be correlated to greater or lesser incidence of various diseases. 
we can attempt to adjust for as many variables as we can. Things like smoking, education, income, and so on. But we can never adjust for them all. And here's something we don't talk about nearly enough. Statistical analysis can be a bit of a black box. Those of us with degrees in health sciences, we all struggle through those required statistic courses. We do our best to grasp things like p-values and confidence intervals and correlation coefficients so that we can do a better job of interpreting that research. But I'm going to let you in on a dirty little secret. Statistics is not a straightforward field. There are many different, and completely legitimate ways that the same data can be sliced and diced, and different methodologies can yield really different results. But the nuances of statistical analysis are often well above the pay grade of those of us who are attempting to report on this research, not to mention those of us who are attempting to apply that research in clinical practice or in our own lives. The whole enterprise is a lot grayer and more opaque than most of us feel comfortable admitting. And this is why I often turn to colleagues who I know have bona fide expertise in this to help me understand what the data do and do not say. And you've heard some of those voices on this podcast. The vagaries of statistics are a little bit beside the point here, but if you are at all interested in some of the ways in which statistics can be misused, either by accident or on purpose. There is a great and very entertaining new book by Carl Bergstrom and Jevin West called Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. I highly recommend it. Now, back to this recent op-ed that so many of you forwarded to me. The authors, Jenna and Worsham, bring up the World Health Organization's recent guidelines on artificial sweeteners as an example of dietary guidelines that are based on very weak, almost circumstantial evidence. And as I mentioned in my recent episode on that same topic, the World Health Organization itself admitted a low level of certainty about the data. However, in their view, with little to no evidence of benefit, even the suspicion of harm is enough to warrant caution. Reasonable minds may disagree. Now, if you heard that episode, you'll remember that I took a somewhat softer stance, arguing that we should simply limit our consumption of artificial sweeteners to the same degree that we recommend restricting our added sugar consumption. So we generally suggest limiting added sugars to about 25 grams per day, and the equivalent of that would be about six teaspoons of an artificial sweetener that's formulated to measure the same as regular sugar or about three of those little pink, yellow, blue, or green packets. In those amounts, I don't think any of those artificial sweeteners pose a big risk. The problem, in my view, comes when we view zero-calorie or natural sweeteners as a license for unlimited consumption of sweetened foods and beverages. Jenna and Worsham do have some constructive suggestions for how we can make nutrition research more accurate and reliable despite all of these challenges. They argue that we could be making much better use of so-called natural experiments. And here they're borrowing from the field of economics, which went through a similar credibility crisis a few decades ago. 
Sometimes events outside of our control conspire to subject people to conditions that we wouldn't impose on them on purpose for either ethical or logistical reasons. And those are known as natural experiments. The ability to gather and process huge amounts of data make these sorts of opportunistic analyses more feasible than ever. A great example, which they give in their article, is the impact of sugar rationing in Britain during the period just following World War II. For about eight years after the war ended, sugar was still strictly rationed. And then when the rationing was finally lifted in the 1950s, sugar became much more available. So British children born just after World War II would have had very little exposure to sugar during their early years. And their siblings, born to the same parents just a few years later, would have had the opportunity to consume much more sugar during the same period of their lives. A natural experiment. So interestingly, the kids born during the years of strict sugar rationing continued to consume less sugar throughout their entire lives. And they also had a much lower incidence of type 2 diabetes. Now, this is still a correlation, and it still doesn't prove causation. But this natural experiment provides a better matched and better controlled data set than typical observational studies. You know, if I were a parent of very young kids, that would probably be enough to motivate me to work a little harder to limit my kids' added sugar consumption, especially early in life. Jenna and Warsham suggest that natural experiments like this remain undertaught and underused, particularly when it comes to diet. And they conclude that this important research, nutrition research they're talking about, needs a credibility revolution of its own. Okay, so that's not a new insight, but it is a valid one. And one that I will continue to address here on this podcast in our ongoing discussions of nutrition research and dietary guidelines. So thanks for being here with me to celebrate 15 years of the Nutrition Diva podcast. As part of that celebration, you'll notice a bonus episode in your feed this week. I recently sat down virtually with Mignon Fogarty. She's better known as the Grammar Girl and Laura Adams, who is host of the Money Girl podcast. All three of our podcasts are part of the Quick and Dirty Tips podcast network, which was founded by Mignon. And Laura is also celebrating her 15th anniversary with her podcast this month. We had a great conversation about podcasting and how it and we as podcasters have evolved over the last decade and a half, as well as how our respective fields of expertise have changed over that time. And we're also going to be sharing a lot of videos and other bonus content on our social media channels, including a retrospective of my favorite episodes from each of the first 15 years on the show. I'm highlighting some of my most controversial episodes, as well as episodes that ended up launching much bigger projects. And you can find all of that on Facebook at QDT Nutrition and on LinkedIn. Just search for my name or Quick and Dirty Tips. The Nutrition Diva podcast is a Quick and Dirty Tips podcast and is supported by our director of podcasts, Adam Cecil, audio engineer Nathan Sems, as well as Davina Tomlin, Holly Hutchings, and Morgan Christensen. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week, starting year 16.